We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Steve Sensfidel coming at you once again with our main man, Michael, not Jordan, but Michael Graney. I started thinking before we even started, I was thinking about the old uh, Michael Jordan commercials with Spike Lee and uh, my main man, Michael Jordan. <laughs> my from Mars. Michael Graney. Michael, thank you. We're doing a new series, which is a really short series on uh, the tale of two satires. And this one is episode one. Lord of the what was it? Lord of the world? Lord of the world. Yeah. Rob Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson's famous apocalyptic novel, Lord of the World. Do I need to which, put like dun dun dun? <laughs> well, if you were talking to the typical audience, yes, and the typical commentator, but I take a completely different view of the novel. In other words, and we, we could, you know, cue the Monty Python uh march and everything else you know and now for something completely different <laughs> although i have been working on this for i'm not even going to say how long because it's too embarrassing but it's been quite a while well you mentioned in fact, it in the last episode the last series the socialism series oh yeah because there there is a definite tie-in as you will find out in this hopefully short Quasi review. I won't. It, 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 this isn't really a book review. It's more of a book orientation. I'll try not to give any spoilers about the plot, because what I really want people to do is read the book from the right orientation. Because if you read it from what I consider uh, Team Apocalypse, not, it's not wrong. Any interpretation a reader puts on a book is, in a sense by definition, the right interpretation, because that's what the book means to that reader. But what I'm going to talk about today is what, in my opinion, the book meant to the author, which now quite frequently there are authors who write books that turn out to be much more than they ever intended. It, it, children's books are famous for this because the, the best ones usually start out as stories that someone is telling to an actual child. And then it just kind of grows. Uh, Through the Looking Glass and Alice's Adventures in Wonderland were like that. Uh, the Narnia stories were like that. Uh, and of course, starting in on that line, I thought I can't remember any others, but uh, as a rule, the best children's books are those that were written for specific children or with specific children in mind. Of course, there are other ones that uh, children just find attractive simply because the, the author managed to mesh with them. Uh, Captain Marriott, Frederick Marriott, uh, whose daughter, by the way, converted to Catholicism. Uh, like you needed to know that. But uh, 
his books. You know, Somebody might books. get that in a trivia question one day. So, <laughs> but Marriott's books, Captain Marriott, uh, and I think some of them are still in print. I, I managed to get the entire series, you know, used. Uh, for some reason, boys just seem to like them, even though he didn't write particularly for for boys. He wrote because that was what he wanted to write. But boys seem to just click on them. The same thing with Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, Burroughs wrote for adults, but children uh, just seem to click with them, especially with Tarzan. No matter how much Johnny Weissmuller managed to mess it up. Uh, I hated Johnny Weissmuller as Tarzan, and apparently so did Edgar Rice Burroughs. He was so sorry he had sold the film rights to Tarzan because, I mean, he didn't mind Elmo Lincoln even though he was kind of a chubby uh, Tarzan. Uh, I got the impression that he kind of liked Buster Crabbe as Tarzan, you know, the guy who also played Flash Gordon and uh, Buck Rogers, uh, and did a reprise in the, what was it, 1970s, 1980s show Buck Rogers with Gil Gerard. He did a reprise of a character called Gordon, who was coming out of retirement to fly a fighter with Buck Rogers. And it's got one of the best lines that if you're not in the know, it'll, it'll go completely past you. Gil Gerard, as Buck Rogers, tells Buster Crabbe, who played Buck Rogers before Gil Gerard was ever even born, says, nice shooting, Gordon. Where'd you learn to shoot like that? He said, I've been doing that since before you were born. And Buck Rogers, the character who is 500 years older than the character Gordon goes, oh, think so? And Buster Crabb goes, young man, I know so. <laughs> I just love that line. <laughs> I'll watch the whole two-part episode of that show just to get that line, even though it has the worst title of all the shows in the series, Planet of the Slave Girls. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> the, whoever picks That's the one thing people struggled with titles back then. <laughs> I struggle with titles now. I can't even tell you my best title because it's unprintable. But uh, Dawn, my my associate here at CESJ, loves it. So, but I can't tell you what it is. Anyway, to get back on topic, which is well, actually, we never left it because we're talking about science fiction and how people misunderstand science fiction. But from its very first publication in 1907. Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson, who had become very, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> fairly well known for his short stories and his historical fiction, uh, somehow launched into a what he called his sensational novels. Uh, this was preceded by one called The Necromancers, which we won't get into. It's a very complicated story and kind of... Uh, it's rather frightening for one of his. It was uh, the Necromancers was one of the first was the first novel by uh, Benson that was turned into a stage play, and this was through the influence of his friend George Grossmith, who was the comic baritone in Gilbert and Sullivan, you know the Doily Card Opera Company. Another bit of trivia that won't be on the test, but it's interesting to know. Uh, Grossmith was himself a novelist. He wrote Diary of a Nobody you know, about the, the common man whom modern society was overlooking, which was also a sub-theme in most of Benson's work. You know, 
the, the dignity of the ordinary human person, which comes out much more in Benson's, uh, I guess you could call it his mainstream fiction, which would make a great series of itself. I think that, you know, most people think that Lord of the World was Benson's masterpiece. In my opinion, it's not. His real masterpiece is a novel that hardly anybody knows anything about, An Average Man. It is terrific. And, but this is not a, uh, an orientation of an average man. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a whole series on Benson's mainstream novels. Yeah, the average man doesn't care about the average man. <laughs> uh, uh, I had to stop myself right there from going into An Average Man, which is one of my favorite books. And I, was, I said, hardly anyone has ever read it, even though they should. Uh, it was one of the last ones he wrote. But to get back to Lord of the World, 1907, from the very first, it has been misunderstood. People take it as, you know, this very original apocalyptic prophecy. It seems like the word most often applied to Lord of the World, especially by people today, is it's a apocalyptic prophecy how he managed to guess so many things right about the end of the world and uh, you know the way things are going to be well no uh one of the things that lord of the world does if you're a student of literature especially catholic literature is demonstrate how easy it is to take a satire for something else one of the best examples of this is saint thomas more's utopia there are people to this day, and some of them got have PhDs, and they teach this stuff. If you look in the Penguin edition of Utopia, the, the fellow who uh, edited it or translated it, I forget which, uh, was claiming that this is Thomas More's blueprint for an ideal society. No, it's a satire and a brilliant one. In fact, the, the evidence strongly suggests that Moore put aside his history of Richard III, which if you read it and know what was actually happening during the Wars of the Roses, you say, this is total baloney. What Moore did in his history of Richard III was attribute to Richard III everything that was wrong with Henry VII and vice versa. And put in such ridiculous details about Richard III that no one could possibly take it seriously, but also to show what was wrong with Tudor England, in Moore's opinion. Uh, it was a little bit too close to home and to people who actually knew what was going on, Richard III was too obviously really Henry VII for that book to go anywhere. So it remained unpublished for quite some time. Uh, couple of centuries, in fact. Uh, no, 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 wasn't that long. It, it did circulate, but after Moore was dead. And Shakespeare actually used a lot of it in his tragedy of Richard III. Even though, as I said, he made, Moore made up the details, like being two years in the womb and having this huge hunchback. Well, apparently he did have a slight, Richard III did have a slight deformity, but it wasn't anything like, uh, uh, Shakespeare or more himself put into his satire. Utopia was a much safer satire on Tudor England. Now, if you read it, 
everything the Tudors were doing right, the Utopians were doing wrong, and everything the Utopians were doing wrong, the Tudors were doing right. And in both in, in some instances, both the Tudors and the Utopians were doing the same thing, only in different forms. And Moore pretty much tells people that this is a satire and don't take any of it seriously when he puts the whole story in the, in the mouth of somebody named Raphael Hithloday. Now, Raphael is the name of the archangel that didn't tell the truth. I mean, this was a big problem in the Middle Ages when in, in the book of, uh, and it just went out of my head, uh, which book does Raphael come into? Tobit, sorry, okay. <laughs> I can't keep everything in my head. But a big problem was, how can an angel not tell the truth? Because he's in disguise, and he's not telling the truth to Tobias and, and Tobit. Uh, so they, there, there's ways around it, but it was a big problem during the Middle Ages. But Hithlo Day is kind of a corruption of uh, traveler in, from Greek. Basically, Raphael Hithlo Day, the name of the supposed narrator of Utopia, is lying traveler who tells outrageous tales. This is the way you can put the name together. And in the preface, he talks about how England is the only country on earth where sheep eat men, meaning that private property is being abolished. You knew I'd work that in somewhere. Uh, and ownership was being concentrated, people were being thrown off their farms and places they'd occupied for centuries to so that the rich landlords could graze sheep. And fiber was, the three basic needs of, of people are food, fuel, and fiber. And to supply fiber, the fortunes of England were built on wool for centuries. And this is comparable to what happened in the United States with the invention of the cotton gin. When cotton changed from a luxury item into a basic item with the ability to process cotton easily, which also justified the, the rapid expansion of slavery and, of course, brought about the Civil War. From 1803 to 1937, cotton was the single largest export from the United States. The David Christie's book, 1855 book, Cotton is King, was that uh, he argued that even though he was against slavery, we had to have it because the economic survival of the United States and the British Empire depends upon slave cultivation of cotton. In my opinion, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin didn't cause the Civil War. Cotton is King did because it told people they were going to live in poverty unless they could keep other people enslaved. Now, <clears throat> so when in the Utopia, St. Thomas More says that, you know, the utopians have the ideal life by abolishing private property and declaring war for profit and doing he was ridiculing that notion because this is what the tutors were doing they were effectively abolishing private property by concentrating property in the hands of a few people and henry the eighth was infamous for declaring war for profit in other words and the king of Utopia would sit back and say, well, can we declare this war and be successful and make a profit at it? Which, of course, to an ethical mindset, you don't declare war for profit. That by no means meets the definition of a just war. But this is what the Tudors were doing. 
So what Moore did was put it in utopia, a place meaning, of course, nowhere, which would underscore the fact it was much safer than saying how, what the Tudors were doing wrong in reality. Otherwise, they'd cut your head off, which they, of course, they did anyway. I, I, I sing in the choir at, at the Cathedral of St. Thomas More in Arlington, Virginia. And some years ago, one of my fellow tenors was looking up at the ceiling and said, how come they have axes painted all over the ceiling? <laughs> because St. Thomas More got his head cut off with an axe. Oh, Sometimes the obvious thing just goes right by people. And the obvious thing about the Lord of the World is that this is not a prophecy. It's a satire. And he's satirizing everything that the secularist Edwardians, remember this was under King Edward the Seventh. They thought that all these new things, you know, socialism, modernism, new age esotericism, would bring about the perfect world. So uh, Robert Hugh Benson said, well, what if we did have a world where all these things had come to full fruition and what you got was Lord of the world. He took everything the Edwardians thought was good and showed how it could be the ultimate evil. In other words, the birth of antichrist, uh, world conquest, the Armageddon. I mean, he closes the this is, this is not a spoiler to tell you that the novel closes in the valley in the Holy Land for which Armageddon is named. I mean, a little heavy-handed satire. It's like, but people keep missing it. Just like you've heard of Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, you know, where Jonathan Swift ostensibly advocates that you solve the problem of poverty in Ireland by eating babies. I have actually found people to this day who think that Swift was being serious, that he was advocating cannibalism. Of course, I do also have to admit that uh, yesterday on Facebook, I got into a completely pointless argument with someone who thought that one third is less than one fourth. I'm, this is our educational system today. I could, don't try to, you're running this show, don't fall on the floor laughing there. I mean, well, you, we always joke about idiocracy, the movie of being a prophecy, and Mike Judge saying, I just wanted to make a movie. I didn't make, I didn't want to make it a prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what adds to the, to the, to, to the whole thing, and is that most people think that Benson made up all the elements, you know, of, Lord of the World out of thin air. No, not only is it a satire, not a prophecy, it's also one of the examples of what was called the future war type of science fiction. Uh, this came to be really big with, you know, purely by coincidence in 1871, which was the year of Benson's birth, a man named Sir George Chesney published a novella called The Battle of Dorking. And what it was, was that the Prussians had just, you know, defeated France in the Franco-Prussian War. And who would have thought that France, you know, which was considered a military uh, uh, strong, I can't think of the word, uh, 
Str- yeah, I got up stronghold? several hours. Should... Stronghold? Yeah, yeah. V- militarily very strong. Uh, who would have thought that the Prussians could defeat them? Even though they had tromped over Austria in the, in the Seven Weeks War a couple of years before and everything else. But Sir George Chesney became very worried. He said, what would happen if the Prussians decided to invade England? And he wrote this future war scenario called the Battle of Dorking, putting it in the mouth of a man in 1940, looking back on what had happened in 1871 when the Prussians decided to take advantage of their recent victory over France and invade England as well. And what he describes is a complete farce of, you know, where the British call it the militia and the and don't really manage to do anything. And of course, the Prussians make their way to London and take over England and impose the new German empire virtually on the world. And of course, it's totalitarian and everything else. Not that this was the first time that people had, you know, written about a future war like this. Uh, There was a book back in 1863, right after George III came to the throne. And it was called, let's see if I can see it. Oh, yeah. Reign of George VI, 1900 to 1925, which was actually pretty close because the real uh, George VI uh, came to the throne in 1936. George V, his father, reigned from, we don't need to know this. (laughs) Sorry. More digressions. I'm trying to keep it short. Keep it short. Anyway, the... uh, the future war subgenre of science fiction became incredibly popular. Everybody and his brother was writing these things. Let's say you had, uh, let's see, in 1859, before you know the Battle of Dorking, you had the air battle, which started to incorporate you know modern, then modern technology. Then you had uh, George Griffith, Angel of the Revolution, in 1893, and its sequel, Olga Romanov, about you know, the huge revolution and the future war in Russia. And oddly enough, virtually all of these future wars take place between 1914 and 1920, just by coincidence. Uh, Then you also had uh, Lewis Tracy, the final war in 1896. I'm not sure, but Tracy may have been a Catholic. He was a a journalist. Uh, He, uh, the final war was his first novel. And it's pretty good. He became a full-time novelist after that. Uh, But it was, you know, basically it was England and the United States versus the German Empire. I don't remember where France fit in with that one. But uh, then you had uh, William Lacour, The Invasion of 1910, which was written in 1906. And just everything. There were hundreds of these things. And it got to be so bad, or so good, if you want it that way, that you had people satirizing the genre. Now, the American, Frank R. Stockton, whom, if you remember from high school, the only thing that most people remember Frank Stockton for was the short story, The Lady or the Tiger. Everybody has to read that story. They know nothing else about Frank R. Stockton except that he wrote that short story. Well, he wrote dozens of novels and hundreds of short stories. But of course, that's the, one of the novels was, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, oh yeah, The Great War Syndicate. 
And some people think that this was a serious treatment of the future war series. It is not. You have to read it. Only one person dies in the entire book. And he's the only one of the few who's actually given a name. Almost nobody has a name. They're all faceless businessmen putting together a syndicate to carry out war using modern technology. Because one of the things that these future war stories almost all had in common were a flying machine of some kind. They all had to have a flying machine. And this is one of the things that people thought that Benson invented for his apocalyptic satire. No, he was just using the, uh, the, the, typical, the, uh, the basic uh, elements of the future war genre. A flying machine, a super explosive. No, Robert Hugh Benson did not foretell the atomic bomb in Lord of the World. He was simply borrowing the same idea that people had been using in most of the future war novels and short stories. And you also had uh, the war usually becoming between 1914 and 1920, as I said. Now, Frank Stockton satirized the genre with the Great War Syndicate. And believe it or not, so did P.G. Woodhouse. You know who P.G. Woodhouse is, you know, Wooster, Jeeves, the Mulliner stories. Uh, in 1909, he wrote two versions of a novel, or actually a novella, in which a Boy Scout saves England in one version and the United States in another. The English version is called The Swoop, and it's how Clarence the Boy Scout saves England from invasion by the Germany. Uh, the military invasion of America was the version written for the United States, and Clarence the Boy Scout saves the United States from invasion from Japan. Uh, total farce, and they were satirizing the genre. Of course, Woodhouse was brilliant at his satires, but they were so farcical that most people didn't realize they were satires. <laughs> Just like uh, Benson was so serious, they didn't realize it was a satire. One of my favorite is in one of the Mulliner stories by P.G. Woodhouse, which take place in a public house where Mr. Mulliner tells these incredibly weird stories about all his strange relatives. And George Griffith, who wrote you know, two of the future war novels, also wrote a novel called The Woman Who Did, about a woman who, for the purest and highest motives, decides to have an illegitimate child. And that, well, you know, if you want a child, go out and adopt one, because if there's one thing Victorian and Edwardian England had in a surplus, it was babies who needed parents. Why make a point by having an illegitimate child? And of course, she's ostracized. And this tells how terrible Victorian and Edwardian morals were for wanting people to be married to have children, you know, this kind of thing. And it was, the title was The Woman Who Did. Well, P.G. Woodhouse put in one of his short stories, Men who did and women who shouldn't have but took a pop at it. <laughs> Unfortunately, if you don't know where that novel, where that came from, it goes right over your head, even though the title itself is funny. Now, what Benson did in Lord of the World, he didn't satirize the genre. What he did was satirize the new things that all these Edwardians and Victorians thought would establish the perfect world. You know, socialism, modernism, 
uh, you know, esoteric New Age garbage, you know, making man himself a god. If you're familiar with the novel, you'll recognize these elements in what was going on. And I don't want to give it away in case you haven't read it. You may be actually want to read it after I finished, of course, because if you, all you thought it was was an apocalyptic prophecy, you're far wrong. What Benson was doing was going after the new things by taking them to their logical conclusion. His idea was to show how what the Edwardians viewed as good were actually bad. And of course, in the, in the, I can't call it a sequel to Lord of the World. I call it a parallel quill to coin a term, the dawn of all, which he wrote about uh, four years later. And what he did in the dawn of all was take everything the Edwardians viewed as bad about religion and showed how it could actually establish a virtual utopia. Not perfect, but still, but still a lot better than the world described in Lord of the World. Uh, so Benson did not satirize the genre the way Woodhouse and Stockton and a couple others did. Uh, possibly the best way to think about it, uh, you're familiar with the movie Blazing Saddles? Uh, it satirized the Western genre. Oh, yes. That's, um, that's such a great movie that could never be made today. <laughs> no, for several reasons. But the, the point I was making here was that uh, Mel Brooks was satirizing the Western movie genre the same way he satirized the monster movie in Young Frankenstein and a couple other things. And silent movie... You know, the only word spoken in silent movie is by Marcel Marceau, where he yells out, quiet. <laughs> uh, I didn't get a harump from that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but Bob Hope, his greatest movie hit, at least while he was making movies, was Paleface, which he tried to capitalize on with a son of Paleface. People say that the reason that Paleface was such a success was because Bob Hope did not satirize the genre. He satirized, you know, the situation, which is what Benson did in uh, uh, Lord of the World and, of course, later The Dawn of All. He was not satirizing the future war genre. He was satirizing the elements in Edwardian society that he thought would bring disaster to you know, to the world, if carried to their logical conclusion, which, of course, by coincidence, we have managed to see today. Uh, so even though Benson did not write it as a prophecy, it's just that he was remarkably accurate simply because he saw which way this stuff had to go, even though he was being hopefully satiric and trying to warn people, you know, let's get a theme throughout his, all his fiction was get back to the basic principles of Christianity, return to the church. Otherwise, this new Christianity, this neo-Catholicism, as we have seen, will bring about disaster. We're not quite a disaster yet. And Benson's satire is perhaps more pointed in that most of the English intellectuals of the day thought that you know, all these new things were terrific. The Fabian Society, uh, of which to which G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Belloc, and Cecil uh, Chesterton, Ch Chesterton's younger brother, all belonged until they realized which way it was going. 
And then they became opposed to everything the Fabians were in favor of, even though a lot of today's distributist and Chestertonians seem to think that they were talking about the same thing, which of course, George Bernard Shaw kept insisting they were, and Chesterton kept insisting they weren't. Uh, but the intellectual class by and large was in favor of all the new things that Benson was satirizing in Lord of the World. And you have to read that book from that perspective. And he actually stated this in a letter to his mother in 1905 when he got the idea for the book. Uh, so it's, it's not that what Monsignor John A. Ryan or E.F. Schumacher or John Maynard Keynes or any of these other people were saying was correct. It was, this is what Benson was opposed to. And as he wrote to his mother, and it, this is a letter from uh, December 16th, 1905, and you're not going to lie to your mother. At least I hope you won't. Uh, he said, I have an idea for a book so vast and tremendous that I daren't think about it. Have you ever heard of St. Simon, you know, Henri de Saint-Simon, whom we uh, covered? Well, mix up St. Simon, Russia breaking loose, Napoleon, Evan Roberts, the Pope, and Antichrist, and see if any idea suggests itself. But I'm afraid it is too big. I should like to form a syndicate on it, but that is an, but that is, but excuse me, sorry, but that it is an idea I have no doubt at all. Now, this was in 1905. It's like, now, it's like you just said, uh, now let me, now sit down, let me, let me throw this out there. I'm going to throw this, 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 in, throw it all in a blender. <laughs> yeah, basically. And of course, Henri de Saint-Simon, he was, the, you know, he was the, the prophet of the new Christianity. In other words, Christianity should become more worldly oriented. We should establish the kingdom of God on earth, which is what Lord of the world did. This is the kingdom of God on earth, and you turn man into God, which is what Fulton Sheen was complaining about in his uh, doctoral thesis in 1925, 20 years later. Uh, the <coughs> Saint-Simon's uh, whole principle was the whole of society ought to strive towards the amelioration of the moral and physical existence of the poorest class. Society ought to organize itself in the best way adapted for attaining this end. Which, of course, once you read Lord of the World, you see, oh, well, everything here is geared toward, you know, physical and material prosperity and well-being. Uh, even the euthanasia crews that go out and kill the seriously injured. Well, how can you, to be, that's kind. We can't let people suffer. I mean, this is, this is the mindset of the new Christianity. I've even had people tell me today, and I won't tell you the names, but you remember the baby Alfie uh, situation. Uh, there was a fellow, a well-known Catholic commentator, actually a couple of them, who kept insisting that it is not murder to withhold medical treatment from baby Alfie, that his life wasn't worth living, therefore he's not really human. Well, that's the new Christianity. That's the world of Lord of the world. And yet these people eulogize Benson's Lord of the world as if it's their, their model for, oh, we must avoid that, and then, then they fall into it. Uh, now, who was this Evan Roberts? Uh, let's see. I don't think we need to go into, uh, let's see, we knew who St. Simon was. Got my, my script here. Mm. 
Yeah, we don't need to talk about Russia breaking loose. That was, it's kind of obvious. Uh, in Benson's day, Russia was just kind of sitting there. If, if in 1905, you had said that there would be within 10 years, a revolution in Russia that would overthrow the world, basically, people just said, are you crazy? Russia is just this backwatered, jerky little country, well, a huge country that nobody gives a damn about. It's just sitting there doing nothing. Uh, and then St. Simon's uh, secretary, Auguste Comte, who founded positivism and a religion of humanity, as did uh, Felicite de Lamennais. They called their, their invented religions the religion of humanity. And of course, in Lord of the World, you have man made into a god and Julian Felsenberg, their, their prophet, Antichrist. Uh, yeah, I don't think I gave any, any plot elements really away there. <laughs> uh, but you know, who is this Evan Roberts? He was a charismatic Welsh preacher who pretty much came on the scene seemingly out of nowhere in 1905, a few months before Benson wrote to his mother. And he got this huge following. He was like the, word, the world's first televangelist without television. Uh, and he was perceived as a serious threat to traditional Christianity simply because it was just so emotional. Everybody was worked up. And people were starting to ask, well, where's the Christianity in this? You got people worked up and emotional. You know, on examination, he wasn't as far out as the people who got scared were thinking. But what caught Benson's imagination was the fact that this man was such a charismatic leader that he just seemingly hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of people were following him. But why? I mean, was he... There must be something possibly demonic there, which is what the people were, were afraid of. It turned out now it wasn't, but just mass movements of that of that sort do scare people. Or they could be used to good effect by dictators like the Nuremberg rallies of Hitler or something like that. It's also why the British were so terrified of Dan O'Connell and his mass meetings. Uh, if O'Connell had not been so committed to peace, he could have conquered England. Uh, and the British probably knew it. But anyway, to return to Robert Hugh Benson again, uh, that covers, you know, you know, Evan Roberts. Now, also by coincidence in 1905, which seemed to be an awfully busy year, that was the year Heinrich Pesch, you know, Father Heinrich Pesch, who redeemed solidarism from Emil Durkheim, published his five-volume masterpiece, A Lehrbuch der Nationalökonomie. Uh, recently translated from the German by a socialist, so it may not be the best way to read it. Learn German and read it in the original, <laughs> if you think it worthwhile. There's been substantial work advancing Catholic social thought since then, so maybe you don't have to. Uh, and I, I just saw everybody go, thank goodness, reading German's hard enough. Reading five volumes from a German professor is gonna be impossible. Uh, anyway, uh, that was also the year that, you know, Heinrich Pesch did his counter of the new things because Emil Durkheim, who developed solidarism, was a fascist socialist student of Saint Simon. And his idea of religion was the group's worship of itself. Uh, and that religion is a social phenomenon, 
not a not a spiritual phenomenon, just as he has it, just as Benson has it in Lord of the World. So he clearly knew about Durkheim. I don't know if he knew anything about Pesh. Otherwise, he, maybe he would have stuck something in there. Uh, now, the whole idea of, as I said, Lord of the World is Benson showing how everything that the Edwardians thought was great about the new things, socialism, modernism, and the new age, that would create a the kingdom of God on earth actually would create a living hell if you were a believing Christian or even any other type of believer. Because you notice that uh, Benson includes the Muslims and the Jews and others in Lord of the World as those being persecuted. In other words, any religious believer is being crushed in this you know, kingdom of God on earth, which supposedly is you're free to believe any way you like, except the government has to approve of it, of course. Uh, this is what Fulton Sheen said. Uh, he says, it is simply impossible to have millions of men in the world living according to their pagan principles, not really pagan, just secular, and not produce the modern chaotic world in which we live, which we've seen. The idea of a heaven here below is the surest way to make a hell upon earth, which of course is what Benson was depicting in Lord of the World in a satiric manner, not a prophetic. The universe thus becomes a multiplicity of self-centered little deities. The coat of arms of each is a big letter I, and when they talk, their eyes are always getting closer together. Sometimes Sheen was a little bit more clever than clear, but I think that was uh, pretty clear. Now, we're coming up to our conclusion. I told you this would be short, relatively speaking for me. Uh, Benson's satire in Lord of the World was probably for the first time really heavy-handed. You, you had seen satire in some of his historical novels, but it was a very light touch, sometimes just a toss-away sentence or two. Uh, it's less pointed and more subtle, but much more profound in his mainstream novels. You, you really have to look at it and you need a guide to understand them since we're about a century removed from the world that he wrote about. So it does, it does have to be explained, which by the way, I wrote a book about it explaining it. Let's see, what is it? Let's see, so much generosity came out in 2013 and virtually everything I'm talking about here today is in the book. So, and it's available on Amazon, Barnes Noble, blah, blah, blah. You know, makes a great Christmas gift. Uh, but in Lord of the World, Benson just let loose. He wasn't going to hold anything back. And he even put this little, little note in the front of the book saying he hoped he's not screaming unduly loud. Uh, well, he screamed so loud that some people couldn't hear it and mistook what the book is all about. Uh, he said he, he knew it was terribly sensational. Uh, he liked that word because he applied it to four of his books, the conventionalists, the sentimentalists, the necromancers, but especially Lord of the World. And he also considered the dawn of all sensational because what he was doing was taking situations and exaggerating them all out of proportion. He never thought any of this stuff would happen. If he would come back today and take a look at it, he'd say, holy cow. What what did you do? Use this as a blueprint? But notice that none of the elements were original with him. He borrowed just about everything he put into Lord of the World. 
his special technique and talent was to add a religious perspective on this and write from the, you know, the perspective of a Catholic. How should a Catholic look at these things? Even though they're completely outrageous, it is still possible to address them in a Catholic manner. It's not a prophecy, it's a satire. Uh, even though instead of the rapier, he used the club in Lord of the World. Uh, and if you think that that's all that Benson wrote, as I said, I think his greatest book was An Average Man. And his contemporary novels, then contemporary a century ago, are brilliant. They are much underrated and more people should read them. And of course, they're available on Amazon under my name because I wrote forwards to them. <laughs> uh, but uh, Benson knew that these, the characters, the plot, you know, the utterly fantastic technology, he knew that his volors, you know, his flying machines, they wouldn't work. He made it up. He loved H.G. Wells's uh, scientific romances, he called them, even though he disagreed with Wells on just about everything. But he liked the stories. And Wells, you know, like uh, War of the Worlds, The Time Machine, completely impossible, but they're good stories, even though you don't like the point they're making that socialism is going to save the world. Uh, and he, Benson underscored his point by adding the orthodox religious perspective to replace the perspective given by the new things, which were the democratic religion. Remember, socialism was first called the democratic religion. It was supposed to replace traditional religion and politics, and that's the world Benson described in Lord of the World. Uh, in fact, Benson's biographer, C.C. Martindale, who was a, who was a Jesuit, uh, he said the whole point of Lord of the World, and this is our conclusion, uh, says where faith goes out, superstition comes in. Man is a worshiping animal and humanity worship, even in Comte's day. Remember, Auguste Comte was St. Simon's secretary who went on and founded positivism and his relig own religion of humanity. He says, humanity worship, even in Comte's day, demanded an organized cult. And of course, in Lord of the World, and I'm not giving anything away, one of the big projects is the development of the cult of man. Man is now the god. It, worship of man is now the official state religion, which is one of the things Benson was satirizing. And of course, the supreme irony, and which it makes the book even more satiric for our day and more pointed, is that all the things that Benson was satirizing and criticizing in Lord of the World, people who think they're being authentic Catholic, interpreters of Catholic, authentic Catholic doctrine are putting, trying to put them into place in the Catholic Church and in the world. You know, modernism, socialism, new age. No, this is what Lord of the World was warning against, and that's the message of the novel for our day. So is there anything you liked in that book? <laughs> Just kidding. I love the book. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Michael, appreciate it. We'll do, uh, what was the other one? Uh, part two next all. week. The, the Dawn of All. The Dawn of All, yes. Which I consider the parallel quill. Oh, I should mention, Evelyn Waugh loved Benson's satire and was probably one of the few people actually understood it. Uh, the... Let's see. I think it was 
which which one was it? Uh, oh yeah, Love Among the Ruins, it, Evelyn Waugh's novella about a future world is clearly inspired by Benson's Lord of the World. If you read them, except that where you know Benson went at it, you know, hammer and tongs and made it as horrible as possible. Waugh made it as weird as possible. And one of the best things you have to do is get a copy of Love Among the Ruins by Evelyn Waugh with Waugh's own illustrations. They are totally surreal. It, it is, you have to read both really to understand either. <laughs> All right. All right, Michael, appreciate it. We'll see you next week. Okay.